holy, 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 there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. That is really what our text is about today in Mark 9. Is Mark 9 is a text about Jesus opening our eyes to see him and see him in his full glory as holy, holy, holy. And the correct response for us is to worship him. So I invite you to open up to Mark 9 verses 1 through 13 with me for our preaching of the word today. I'd also like us to be reminded of our theme throughout the book of Mark that might seem simple, but it is really the focus of this text, which is right in the middle of Mark, and that is to know Jesus, the Son of God. And we will see that on clear display for us today, to know Jesus, the Son of God. I'll begin in verses 1, I'm sorry, verse 1, and then I will read through verse 13 for us. Mark 9, 1 through 13 reads this. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, Is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Until Jesus had, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. God, you are God of light from light, and we see that clearly in this passage. May we recognize your glory today, but may we recognize that your glory is not contradictory to your suffering. Would we not see these two things as opposites, but rather would we see your glory and your suffering united as one in your magnificence, that we might worship you and honor you with all of our lives. Might might we see your fullness in these scriptures today. Lord, we love and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Finding a balance in life can be difficult. What I mean by this is a few things. This past week when Ashley was rehearsing for Sunday worship, not this week, but the week before, Ellis was in here as she usually is and she was playing around and she was coming down the stairs and Ellis unfortunately lost her balance and she tripped and she hit her jaw as she fell and it hit the top of her mouth so that her lip tie came undone and as you could imagine, it was a mess. It was a mess of things. 
Ellis had a difficult time finding her balance. Or I can think about myself this past week. My wife, Ashley, she's a really good cook, as some of you know. She decided to bake an apple crisp, and it was delicious, it was enjoyable, but because of it, I had a difficult time maintaining a balanced diet. Oftentimes, throughout the night, you would find me on the couch with some delicate apple crisp and, of course, a healthy scoop of ice cream on top of it. And then just to top it off a little bit, I had to throw the caramel, drizzle it on, right? And I had a difficult time, maybe some of you can tell, maintaining my balanced diet this past week. Had to go on some extra runs because of it. Or it could be in the grand scheme of things. This morning, just for the Rosa household, we are trying to balance our family with kids right now being sick, me being here preaching, trying to organize work, and trying to lead my family. Sometimes it can be difficult to find a balance in life. But equally and potentially just as difficult as balancing life, your ability to walk, and then your diet is balancing the way you view God. Balancing your theology, balancing your understanding of the Bible. What do you mean, balancing your understanding of the Bible, Brother Robert? What I mean by this is it's not unusual to find that sometimes people emphasize or they focus exclusively on certain parts of the Bible or on certain aspects of the Bible. Here's an example. Sometimes you'll run into people or pastors or preachers, who really focus or emphasize a certain attribute or part of God. Maybe some people have a certain affection and love, and this isn't a bad thing, a love for God's love. And like I said, that's not a bad thing. It's not an unbiblical thing. God is love, 1 John 4. He's a God of steadfast love, right? And there can become an emphasis on God's love in a ministry or a preacher or a Christian, right? Or potentially, You might have some people who focus on God's justice, that the Lord is always going to do what is right, and he is going to punish those who do not do what is right, because he is a God of justice. Or you might find those people who emphasize God's sovereignty. I don't know who those people are, but whatever it is, there can be a temptation when thinking through theology, when thinking about God, when thinking about Bible, to emphasize certain characteristics, attributes, or parts of it over the other. And what I think Mark 9 is here to do is Mark 9 is here to actually give us a balance. Mark 9 is here to actually balance our theology. So we don't weigh too heavy on one thing in the Bible and completely miss out on another. Or potentially see one aspect of who God is and what the Christian life is, and then dismiss another. Instead, what I think Mark wants to do for us is he wants to help us see two ideas that are apparently contradictory or opposites, and he wants to hold them together. For the last 10 verses in the book of Mark, he has been talking about suffering. And with suffering, he's been talking about Jesus' death. Some of you will remember, Jesus comes up to Peter and he says, I will be handed over and persecuted by the Pharisees, suffering and death. And in response to that, Jesus says, now you also are to suffer. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And we looked at that through the last few weeks. Now if 
you only take what Jesus had been saying at the end of Mark 8 and cut it off from the rest of the Bible and absolutize it to say that's what the Christian life is, you would end up with a view of the Christian life or of Jesus or of God that says it's all about suffering. It's all about suffering. And I want to say I think that's wrong. Just a complete focus on suffering misses a whole other area of the Bible. And I think what Mark has done, because he expects some people to think that, maybe it's just about suffering, is he's thrown in Mark 9, 1 through 13 as the glory. He's brought in the magnificence, the wonder, the awesome, the joy, the glory especially of who God is. And these two ideas that can seem opposites to one another or as though they are binaries and split apart from one another, what he does for us in this text by uniting Mark 8, 31 through 38 and Mark 9, 1 through 13 together is he says, no, they are united. They are attached. That Jesus Christ will, yes, experience great suffering, but that is not contrary to his great glory. And what I think he wants to communicate to us about Jesus and also about the gospel and about the Christian life is that the two are united. That suffering comes with glory and glory comes with suffering. Another way to think about it is that the cross comes before the crown, but the crown validates the cross. The two are tied, knit to one another. And he wants to make sure that none of us lose balance. And none of us lose the idea of the fullness of the Christian life. That none of us just think, oh, it's just about suffering, that Jews are just about suffering, and it's just about the cross. Or he doesn't want to lose the other side and say, oh, it's just about glory, or it's just about the resurrection. No, he wants to hold these very two ideas together closely, and he wants to help us actually see how suffering and glory unite to one another. And these things that would be on the opposite sides of the spectrum are actually very close to one another. And so I want to invite you into this text, and I want you to think about how is it that we are going to see suffering and glory united in Mark 9, 1 through 13. And so I begin Mark 9, verse 1. This is actually following Jesus' last statement in Mark 8, 34 through 38, where Jesus had been telling them about the cost of discipleship. And the last thing that he said to them is that whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his angels and his Holy Father. And then he concludes with this. This is actually not a break, even though it looks like a break in our Bibles. He finishes with this statement. And what this statement does is it enters into the new idea. It enters not just into suffering, but it's going to focus on something new that's going to come. It's going to focus on what we're going to see is glory. Verse 1, Mark writes this. And he said to them, Truly, and whenever you see truly, you should think Jesus wants us to pay attention. It's like he's saying, come here. Let's look and see what this actually says. I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they've seen the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so Jesus is communicating to his select group of disciples who are with him at this moment that some of you, not all of you, but some of you are going to get to actually see the kingdom of God. Now this raises two questions for us. One probably comes to your mind right away. Well, who among the disciples is actually going to be able to see the kingdom of God? And then second, 
well, what's the kingdom of God going to look like? And think about this. Didn't these disciples die? Yes, they're all dead. But that means that they saw the kingdom of God. So does that mean that the kingdom of God is here on this earth right now? That it's going on? That the kingdom of God came in their lifetimes? And what Mark wants to do is he wants to introduce us to this idea that Jesus is going to give some of his disciples, and we'll see some of them and who they are, a preview of the kingdom of God. He's going to give them a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. Many of you know what a premiere is to a movie. It's where a select group of people are welcome to go and see a movie before the masses are allowed to see it. Anybody in here ever been invited to a premiere? No, I I imagine not. I've never been invited, but man, wouldn't that be cool? Be awesome to be able to go and see the movie with a select group of people, be part of that group, and be able to go and see it before everybody else got to see it. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to welcome us and welcome these disciples here into a premiere. He's going to welcome us into a premiere of the kingdom of God who act, and actually get to see what it's going to look like. And so verses two through eight is going to be the premiere of the kingdom of God, and we're gonna see his glory in this. But then he's gonna explain what that actually means and how the glory of Jesus relates to what we learned about last time, the suffering of Jesus. And so verse two begins six days later. Jesus took with him, and here's your few people who are gonna get to see it, who are going to the premiere, Peter, James, and John. And where is he taking them? Notice this. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And I want you just to notice the little language that Mark is using at this moment to lead us into what's going on. He's leading them up. He's ascending. He's taking them up a high mountain. Now we'll focus on what that means, the fact that he's taking them up and what that means for market here in a second. But I want us to think about just the importance of mountains in the Bible and how this would be really significant for these guys. We can think about through the Old Testament, how when we saw Abraham, Abraham took his son up to the top of Mount Moriah where he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, but then God intervened. Or we could think about where God comes and meets his people Israel at Mount Sinai. And he's communicating with them and they're getting to know him. Or we can think about Elijah the prophet when he's called up to the mountain of God and he hears the wind of God go by him and begin to speak to him. What the mountain of God is doing is it's inviting us into this theater. I told you it's like a premiere, but what it's doing is it's inviting us into where God speaks It's inviting us into how God communicates with his people throughout the whole Bible. And for us who are rising up the mountain because we're rising up the mountain with the disciples now in this text, we should be expecting something like God to appear at Mount Sinai where he came in thick darkness and clouds and rumbling thunder and great light or where he appeared to Elijah with great winds and earthquakes, and something awesome is going to appear in this theater of God as we begin to actually see what's up on top of the mountain. And it says this, 
and he was transfigured before them. This is Jesus who is transfigured before him. And the transfiguration, it only gets a little bit of detail and we'll see the bright light that's gonna come from him, but there is not much detail given to the transfiguration. What we know about the transfiguration is really in the word. The Greek word is metamorphio, which if you can hear that, just listen to that word, metamorphio, we can understand that our English word for metamorphosis comes from it. And many of you will remember back into your science classes in elementary school when you learned about that process of metamorphosis. When there was a caterpillar who took on a cocoon and then came out of the cocoon as a beautiful, wonderful butterfly. What it's trying to do is it's trying to align Jesus with that very idea. That there is a transformation of Jesus at this moment. That he's being metamorphosized into a new form something different. We're going up the mountain and we're expecting to see something glorious and here it is. And then in verse three, it says that his clothes became radiant, radiant, intensely white. And so there's this bright, shining light beginning to come from him. And it says as no one, and that one right there is actually a launderer, as no launderer on earth could bleach them. The point that he's making is that you could take these clothes to any cleaner in town and no cleaner, no matter how professional they are, would be able to bleach them this white. Jesus is bright and shining with a blinding light as he's transfigured up on top of the mountain. It's glorious. But we've seen people shining. We've seen people change in a way. You can think about Moses in the Old Testament. Moses goes up to the mountain of God and he sees the glory of God and it says that his face was shining bright because he had seen the glory of God and then he had to come down the mountain and they had to put a veil over his face because he was shining so much and they couldn't actually look at him. But notice the difference between Jesus and Moses. Why was Moses shining? Moses was shining because he saw the presence of God. Jesus is not shining because he sees the presence of God. Why is Jesus shining? You know the answer. Verse four, shining bright, and then, this would be magnificent, there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Elijah and Moses, to modern listeners and us who aren't, steeped in the Bible as his audience would be, doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. But these are like rock stars to his audience. These are like old-time presidents. This is like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington for our day's sake, walking up next to Jesus and just saying, hey, how's it going, Jesus? Imagine this scene. But why is it that Elijah and Moses are appearing right next to Jesus? Why is it they're coming next to him? Well, what Elijah represents is he represents the prophets. In all of the New Testament, there is no prophet who is talked about more than Elijah. And yes, Isaiah is quoted more because he's a writer of the book of Isaiah, but Elijah is most referenced. And so he is the representative for books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and on and on through the rest of the prophets. He's a representative on behalf of them. And we'll talk about what that means. And then we have Moses. Moses is the writer of the first five books of our Bible, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he's also the main figure. And therefore, he is the representative on behalf of what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. And what these two men are doing is they're saying, we are the representatives of the Old Testament, of the Torah, and of the prophets. And we are coming here and we are recognizing this one, Jesus. And what they're saying about Jesus is, we've spoken of you. We've talked about you. We were telling everybody about your coming. And what they are communicating is that the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all has a telos or a purpose or an end. And it was not just for the sake of Israel. It was not just for the sake of Elijah. It was not just for the sake of Moses. It was not just some miraculous story back there that just occurred. The purpose of the Old Testament was to come to fruition and fulfillment all right here. And it's like they're saying, you're here. You're here, Jesus. And we're recognizing you. This is important, and I want to mention a word of application at this moment. I hope everyone in here, especially if you're a member, daily, weekly has scripture reading going on in their life. But one of the best ways that you can begin to read scripture is to begin to look for Jesus. And you say, what do you mean look for Jesus? What I mean is, as you read your Old Testament, and as you read your New Testament, notice we do both, Old Testament and New Testament, we should begin to look and ask questions of, what does this actually tell me about Jesus? Because every chapter, every book, Everything written in the Bible from all the way back in the Old Testament, and some of you who are going through the Genesis study, you're thinking, we've read some really weird things back in Genesis. And I will say, yes, we have. They are all pointing to Jesus. And so if you're taking notes right now, I'd encourage you, one thing you should do in your Bible reading, as you're going through it, Old Testament and New, where is Jesus? How are we seeing him? Because that is what actually makes us distinctly Christian. Makes us different than a Jew. I remember back in John 5 when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. He says, you search the law and the prophets because you think that they bear witness about you. But you fail to come to me because you don't realize they bear witness about me. What makes a Christian a Christian when they read their Bible is when they go to the Old Testament, they don't just say, oh, that's about Israel. They say, no, Moses and Elijah are pointing forward to Jesus. And just a plug, if you're someone who's thinking right now, that sounds hard, that sounds difficult to find Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that it's in every verse. You're like, oh, that tells me about Jesus somehow. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying Jesus is under every leaf or every rock in the Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying. But what I want to do is I want to help you actually begin to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And one of the ways that we can do that is we can start coming to Sunday school, Wednesday nights, studying the Bible together. One of the things that Zach did really well in his study this morning is when he was talking about the book of Proverbs, a book where Jesus is never mentioned, he's talking about Jesus all the time. Because we're recognizing that all the Proverbs, all the wisdom finds its fruition in him. As Christians, we need to be very Christ-centered, very much focused on him and recognizing him and praising him. And that's what should happen actually in this text. 
with Peter and James and John is they should see, wow, Jesus, he's with Elijah and he's with Moses and they're both pointing to him and talking to him and saying, hey, here he is. But he misses it. It goes right over his head where he's not going to actually understand the significance of what's going on. So look in verses five through six. And if we do this with our Old Testament, we just never look for Jesus, we'll be just like Peter at this moment. Verse five, and Peter said to Jesus, and just before we can give what I said, Peter always, with his words and his mouth, puts himself in a tough situation in the book of Mark. <laughs> he's very brash. He never really thinks about what he's gonna say. And he's gonna do the same at this moment. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But then in verse six, you can tell he doesn't actually know what he's talking about and he doesn't know what to do for he did not know what to say. <laughs> and so he's just like, I gotta say something. I just gotta talk. You ever know that person's just gotta say something at the moment just so they can get their word across? For they were terrified. They're seeing all this and they're seeing the constant reaction what we see throughout the book of Mark is they're in great fear and they're in great terror. And Peter, while I think he's well-meaning and I think he probably has a good intention behind what he's doing, saying, hey, let's put tents up here so that we can be around you and we can talk and we can have a conversation with you and then we can be around Elijah and Moses and we can listen to them too. I think the focus of the text was all supposed to be about Jesus and what he's done is he's taken the focus off of Jesus and he put it on all three. He says, I'm gonna give as much emphasis, I'm gonna give as much support, I'm gonna give as much my thoughts, my time to Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. They're all in one in the same breath. And what he fails to realize is Jesus is greater than all. And I think it's even possible that what he might be thinking at this moment is, wow, this is so cool. My, and notice what he refers to Jesus as, rabbi. My little rabbi, my teacher who's been leading me along all this way, he gets to hang out with these big guys like Elijah, and, and then you got Moses over here. That's crazy that they think of him like this because he's just a rabbi. It's kind of like if, you know, all of a sudden, miraculously, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln appeared right here at the moment and they began to talk to me, right? You wouldn't think anything significant about me. You'd be like, why are they talking to him? That's kind of cool that they're talking to him. But really, who's significant? Abraham Lincoln, George Washington right here. And what he misses is the glory, the superiority, the magnificence of Jesus to everyone in all of the Bible, but also in all of life. This whole few verses has been for the purpose of leading us up a mountain to see the glory of Jesus, to see his superiority, so that we will actually focus on him and not anything else. And the text tells you that. Because what the text does is it's like God the Father knows how Peter's going to react or here's what he's saying and he says, take your eyes off everybody else and put it on one person. And I want us as long run, as we look at this text, not just to think, how is I'm gonna put my eyes on Jesus in this moment? How is it that I'm gonna put my eyes on Jesus for my life? And I'm not gonna treat Jesus as an equal among my peers. I'm not gonna treat Jesus as another way for self-help as though Jesus is basically the same kind of person as Oprah 
or Jesus is the same kind of person as my boss or manager, or Jesus is the same kind of person as my best friend. No, this purpose of this whole verses are to say, Jesus is superior, give your attention and allegiance to him, because he's the only one left. Look who's left in verses six through, sorry, seven through eight. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. We've heard this before. This is back in Mark 1 when Jesus was baptized. And he says, this is my beloved son. It's like God the Father says, he's no rabbi. This is my son right here who you're talking to. And these other guys, they're prophets. Listen to him. Notice that. You're not supposed to set up tents and listen to all these other guys. The prophets, the Old Testament, supposed to lead you to Jesus and he is the one who's superior and you're supposed to listen to and we know this because they all end up disappearing and suddenly look around they're looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus and I love this phrase Jesus only what would it look like long run if we set our eyes and we gave attention, and we gave authority to Jesus only in our life. If every other authority in our life, that includes maybe me, pastor, that includes your friends, that includes your job, that includes everything else you do in your life, maybe your hobbies, maybe it's a sport you play, I don't know whatever else it is, and you said Jesus has authority over it all. What would that begin to look like for us long run? What it would look like in this text is if Peter says, I'm not building a tent for all of them. This is amazing that Elijah and Moses are here. It's amazing that they're talking to Jesus and that they're saying Jesus is the fruition, the fulfillment of all things. The whole purpose of this text is that we would set our glory, our, sorry, our minds and our understanding and our eyes on the complete glory of Jesus. There is not another human being. There is not another God. There is not another thing on this universe that is meant to compare with this transfiguration. The purpose of Jesus going up the mountain, changing into a new form, and then shining with bright light, and then the prophets coming next to him and talking to him is to say, hey, this is the one you're supposed to learn from. This is the one you're supposed to get authority from. This is the one who is supposed to be ruler and master over your life. And you would have no other. Instead, what I think has happened is one thing I've talked about many times. Is we compartmentalize our life and we say Jesus has rule and authority over the spiritual things. Like going to church. When I read my Bible. But then when I get away from that, I get around my friends, I get around my work, I begin to abide by their rules and their terms. Jesus doesn't want us to be looking to anyone else for authority. Jesus doesn't want us to be looking at anyone else's glory and wanting that. No, what Jesus is concerned about in this text is seeing his radiance, seeing his glory as supreme above all and saying, I'm going to acknowledge him. For me personally, what this looks like, this might sound silly, is that it means I don't give my opinions, and, or sorry, I don't give my attention and I don't give my worship over to 
theologians and biblical scholars. I'm a nerd when it comes to books and reading them and thinking, oh, wow, this guy's so smart and he has all these great ideas. And like, that's great, right? But I can have, an atten- I have a tendency to go and build them a tent, to go and give them just as much attention. What's that area of your life? And we all have them. We all got them. I got them. Where we're saying, yeah, I'm with Jesus over here. But then when I get in this sphere, things are different. Jesus, the whole purpose of this is to see his glory and to give attention to him. So, how is it that Jesus being supremely glorious, awesome and magnificent in this, te- magnificent in this text, matches with verses 31 through 38? Last time we were in here, we were talking about Jesus' suffering. Jesus saying, I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to die. But then in these verses, we see Jesus is like no other, supremely glorious. How is it that these two ideas come together? What I think Mark has done, and I think he's going to explain this for us here in the rest of our verses, is he's given us these verses to give us that balance that I was talking about. To see that, yes, Jesus is supreme, Jesus is glorious, Jesus is king, Jesus has authority, and we're to worship him, but that is not contrary to Jesus' suffering, Jesus' sorrow, Jesus' hurt, Jesus' death on a cross. To see that the cross and the crown are actually united. And Jesus, what he wants to do for us, and Mark, in writing about this narrative, he wants to bring it all together. And he wants to show us, yes, Jesus is supremely glorious, and we see him as that, and we worship him as that, but also he's the crucified Messiah who we die and we, who we follow, and we die to self. But those things are not separate, rather they're united to one another. And in verse 9, begins this. They're coming down the mountain, and they begin to talk. And he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until, and notice this, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, why is it that Jesus is leaving the Mount of Transfiguration and he's telling them about rising from the dead? Why is it that he's mentioning this idea, Son of Man rising from the dead? I think, and I want to suggest to you, because what they've just experienced is a premiere of the resurrection. What they've begun to see on rising up to the top of the mountain and what they've seen in his change is they've actually begun to see the glorified state of the Lord or what he's going to look like. And I think the purpose of not telling anyone is to remind them this is what the resurrection is going to be like. But the disciples, they're confused. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. But then they ask this question in verse 11. And this question often catches biblical scholars and it catches Christians off guard. And sometimes I don't think we know how to take this. They ask him this question that has nothing to do with the resurrection, seemingly. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, this question first seems like it has nothing to do with the resurrection, but I want to contend that it first does have to do with the resurrection. But the reason why they're asking this question is because they're thinking, well, yes, Jesus, we know that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, but we don't know what you're talking about. Jesus said that the Son of Man must be resurrected. And among Jewish tradition and among the Old Testaments, we know that there's going to be a resurrection, but it's going to be a national resurrection. It's going to be a a resurrection of all Israel and all the people of God. But the Son of Man thing, 
I don't know. But what they do pick up on, and this is where I think the question comes from, is they do begin to pick up on that Jesus is talking about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is this idea that God is going to come back and he's going to reign with his people and he is going to be with them to set up a kingdom over all the earth and bless the whole earth. But they know something. They know what the scriptures teach. And they know that before the day of the Lord comes, there must be someone who comes. And that's why they ask the question, why do the scribes say, Elijah has to come first? And the reason they ask the question about Elijah coming first, and the reason why the scribes teach that, is because it's in our Old Testament. Because back in Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, Malachi the prophet prophesied this, before the coming of the Lord, before the glory of the Lord, before the day of the Lord. Verse 5, Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah was prophesied to come before the day of the Lord. And Elijah was prophesied to bring peace to the people when he comes that he was going to turn fathers to their children again and turn children to their fathers again. But what the disciples are picking up on, Jesus, you're saying a resurrection has to happen, and that's like the day of the Lord. But we know that Elijah has come, or Elijah has to come. So where is he? They're looking around and saying, where's Elijah at? And yes, sure, they saw Elijah on top of the mountain, but they're wondering, Elijah has to come. Elijah has to actually come to inaugurate the day of the Lord. And this resurrection that you're talking about, I don't think it's going to happen until he comes. And so they're very, biblically literate, they're very biblically literate and they're very theologically aware of the timeline and these things must take place. And Jesus' answer to them in verses 12 through 13 is going to give us a full timeline of how these things must take place. Of how Elijah comes of how the Son of Man must suffer, there's that keyword suffer, but then also how the Son of Man must rise. And what I want you to focus on is, yes, we'll focus on Elijah for a second, but really focus on the suffering and the glory knit together in Jesus' words. Notice what he says in verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So he says, yes, you're right. The, the prophets are true, and I, I affirm the prophets, And how is it written? So this is what's also going to come. Of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things. So there's that key word, suffering. Suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So he's giving us the timeline. Elijah comes. Son of Man is going to come after that. And he's going to suffer many things. We'll talk about what that suffering is. And then in verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This would be shocking. Because the disciples would be realizing, wait, Elijah has come? And if Elijah has come, that means the day of the Lord is coming. And if the day of the Lord is coming, that means this resurrection is going to occur. And then this suffering that you're talking about, that's going to occur as well. But they're still thinking, where's Elijah? I mean, yeah, we just saw him up on top of the mountain, but is he around here hanging out? 
Elijah does not come in the New Testament in a revival or a resurrection form. Rather, there's someone who has come, who we've already seen in the book of Mark, who is a representative of Elijah. You'll remember there was one who was early on in Mark 1 who was out in the wilderness like Elijah was, and he wore camel's hair and a leather belt, and he was eating locusts and honey. Yum stuff, right? Glad my wife makes apple crisp. And, and he was out there in the wilderness proclaiming a message of repent, for the day of the Lord is here. Very much like Elijah was. And there's one person who matches what verse 13 is talking about. At the very end, they did to him whatever they pleased. There's one who's already died, and that was back in Mark 6, when we saw John the Baptist being imprisoned by Herod, and he was killed by Herod because he was beheaded for his faith. Who has come? Elijah has come in the form of John the Baptist. And Matthew makes this clear and he spells it all out for us, but Mark wants us to pick up on this. Elijah's here, but now the Son of Man is here. And the Son of Man from these verses is gonna do two things. You can see it in verse nine and you can also see it back in that verse 12. One, the Son of Man is going to rise from the dead, but the Son of Man is also going to suffer many things. Suffering and glory is what he's going to experience. And Jesus wants to bring together these two topics that we've been talking about. That Jesus is suffering, being betrayed by the Pharisees. Jesus being put to a cross is going to lead to the Son of Man's glory. And what is his glory like? It's like a resurrection. And remember in verse nine how he's walking down the mountain and saying, hey, don't tell anyone about that until I'm rising from the dead because what you just experienced is a resurrection. Jesus on the cross, suffering to death, leads to Jesus transfigured, bright lights shining from him, and all the law and the prophets saying, yes, that's my Messiah. Suffering and glory come together in the form of Jesus. And the two are not contrary to one another. It is quite sad today that we have opposites in this world in the Christian faith, that we have an unbalance in these ideas. Many people focus on, yes, it's a suffering, it's an ascetic almost lifestyle or ascetic. And then some people focus on, oh, it's just the glory it's just bright lights shining and happiness and just seeing Jesus all the time. But the two in the Bible are knit together to say that suffering comes before glory, but glory validates the suffering. The cross comes before the crown, but the crown validates the cross. And for us in our Christian life, we should expect the same. Because as we heard, if anyone will come after me, Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is going to look like, yes, will we suffer? But the good news of suffering is there will be great glory through it, great glory in it, and great glory from it. And I know some of you in this congregation have suffered greatly and are potentially suffering right now. This hope says there's a transfiguration. There's a better side of this. There's a light at the end of this thing. And there's glory at the end of it. But suffering comes with it. 
But then for some of us who might be experiencing what we'd say is glory on this earth, and I mean real glory in a biblical sense. I don't mean glory like the world sees it as like having a bunch of things and being acknowledged among men. Glory as in becoming like Jesus. Because that's what glory is. I want you to understand, if you are becoming like Jesus right now, you're growing in faith in Christ, do not think that when sufferings come, that means you're not going to be in glory. Sometimes people think that when sufferings, trials, heartaches come, that means, oh, God's punishing me. That's not the picture of what Jesus is painting. Jesus is painting the picture that if the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, as God the Father recognized, is going to have to suffer to experience glory, I would say we would have to as well. To be conformed to his image, yes, we will suffer. But oh, how glorious it is because we get to look like Jesus at the end of the day. And so suffering, if we have it all its own, we have an imbalance. If we have glory and it's all on its own cut off, we have an imbalance. But instead what we want is we want a balance in Jesus Christ where we look to Jesus and we say, wow, that's my crucified Messiah and that's glorious. That's what the Christian life is. That's what the gospel is. I invite you to trust in it and believe in it today. Let's pray. God, you are the suffering servant and you are our glorious king. I ask that we would worship and honor you in your great glory as we see you upon the Mount of Transfiguration, that we would not see that as opposed to the suffering that you will experience. I ask that we would see these things too, the ideas knit together with one another, honoring you in suffering and glory. God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love and praise you in your holy name. Amen.